All right, let's turn to Acts chapter 12. I'm going to paint this picture for you. There was a, a great king. Uh, he took glory to himself. That was due to God alone. He was suddenly struck with a strange illness and was dramatically humbled before God. Anybody know who I'm talking about? King Nebuchadnezzar. That's right. Actually, it was the 5th century B.C. Uh, King Nebuchadnezzar. Okay, let's do another one. Another leader, centuries later, power over the Jews. He allowed himself uh, to be called, and actually he delighted to have himself called God Manifest. And he is stricken with worms, and he's... Uh, possessed of a stench, made himself a stench that made himself odious to himself and to others, actually. Now, this one's not in the Bible, so I'm not going to ask you to guess it, but it's the second century before Christ, and his name was Antiochus Epiphanes. You ever heard of him? All right. Well, yet another leader we find ourselves, another uh, king of the Jews, allows himself to get too close to the titles that are ascribed to the only true king of the Jews, the Lord Jesus Christ. He is eaten by worms. And then he dies. That would be Herod Agrippa I. You recognize that name? That's the guy we talked about last week, right? It's the first century, and that's the one that's the text before us this morning. I've only got two points to the message tonight. You've already got notes that are filled in, but if you still, if it helps you pay attention, just rewrite the words as I say them uh, next to it, okay? Two, two points tonight. Number one, we're just going to talk about the event itself. We're going to walk through the narrative, just a couple of verses in Acts 12. It all culminates in verse 24, but really the text is, uh, is the, the event, the narrative is 20 through 23. And then in the second place, we're going to ask, why is this here? Why do, we, why do we need to put this here? Why is this unusual account given at this particular point in Acts at the end of this chapter? Um, and for that matter, why is it given at all? Why does God have this really descriptive uh, story of a leader who was eaten by worms and died? Did we really need to know this? Well, I think we'll culminate with the theme of this passage, which is that our God is a jealous God and he will not have his glory be given to another. Uh, and that's really uh, the, the title of our, our message here. So let's start. Herod, verse 20. And remember we talked about this Herod last week. Same guy. Herod the king who stretched out to harass a, a part of the church. This is the Herod from verse 19 where we remember last week who after Peter escaped from prison, he examined the guards. And what did he do to the guards? He ordered they'd be executed, right? Why? Yeah, they lost their prisoners. And so that's exactly what he had happen. And then we see that he goes on vacation after that. I guess that was a, was a bad day. And so now he's going to go on vacation. And he actually goes from Jerusalem up north uh, to Judea and the Caesarea, which is actually the capital seat of that government. That's where the capital was. Judah was its own uh, government entity at that time. And he, Herod, was the, was the governor. And, but as we know from verse 1, what did they refer to him as? What title was he given? He was known as the king. What was he known particularly the king of? King of the Jews. Now when you read Herod's in the New Testament, I want you to get this picture of what you're dealing with. I'm not saying this is like the character wise, but I really want you to think about 
Sort of like Kennedys and the Bushes, right? Uh, so uh, these are families who have a number of people from their families in government, right? Think presidents or senators or attorney generals, or in the case of the Bushes, uh, presidents, presidents, vice presidents, and governors and, and governors. But the name Bush, you know, is connected with government, just like the name Kennedy is connected with government. So Herod is connected with government. In fact, there are five Herods in the New Testament that are referred to. You have this in your notes. We talked about last week. The first one, this is Herod the Great. I won't bore you with all the dates here. I didn't give those to you. But Herod the Great, does anybody remember which one this is? He's the one you read about at the time of Jesus, right? The birth of Jesus. He's the one the Magi came to, the wise men came to. He was the one who was very upset to hear that there would this, be this king, the king of the Jews. Because like Herod Agrippa the, the first, he himself thought to be king of the Jews. So what did he have happen to those infants? He had everybody under the age of two brutally murdered. Um, and so that was Herod the Great, not this Herod. That was actually the grandfather of this Herod. And this was not the kind of guy that you wanted to be related to, okay? He killed at least one of his wives and killed quite a bit of his children as well. Not the kind of guy you'd want to go golfing with or even have as your neighbor, okay? Well, one of his sons whom he did not kill, probably because he resembled his father the most, uh, was Herod uh, Archelaus. And remember, when, when Joseph and Mary, right after all the, the infants are uh, two and under, they have, they have them all killed, when Joseph and Mary come back to Bethlehem, they're afraid to go to Bethlehem because of this Herod, Herod Archelaus. Uh, he was in power, and this guy was too much of a clone uh, of his dad. So they split and, and went away for a little bit longer. Uh, Archelaus didn't reign that long and, and was very much despised by the people. The third Herod we see in the New Testament is Herod uh, Antipas. He actually succeeded Herod Archelaus. You still follow me? And anybody know what Herod Antipas uh, just to show that light begets light, this is the Herod who's responsible for another person's murder. You better remember who that is? John the Baptist, right? John the Baptizer. Because, you remember why? John had the gall to say, it's unlawful for you, Herod, to have your brother's wife. And so this is, this is also the one who makes a cameo appearance, by the way, at the time of the trial of Jesus. Very briefly, Jesus appears before Herod Antipas and uh, and still haven't arrived to our Herod yet. So you got Herod the Great, Herod Archelaus, Herod Antipas. Uh, then we, we put Herod Agrippa II, who obviously comes after Herod Agrippa I, fourth. And the reason is because Herod Agrippa II hasn't come yet. He's going to come later. That's the one Miss Becky mentioned last week that the Apostle Paul is going to come up in front of and give him account uh, and, and actually share the gospel with him. And you think about the lineage of the Herods that this guy comes from, you understand what that really took, the boldness, the fear Paul must have had uh, in that time. So let's now look at the one we're looking at, Herod Agrippa I. We know, and actually this is helpful in dating the book of Acts and showing that the Bible and history go together. We know that Herod Agrippa died in A.D. 44. So that will give you some idea about where we're at in the book of Acts. He reigned just for about four years. Uh, he was given... Uh, a, a governorship, a, a province of a governorship over all Judea. He was given one by these two guys named uh, Claudius and Caligula, two emperors of Rome. They went to school together. These guys were also wicked, weird uh, people. They were nutcases, and they had given to this guy who they went to school with this land and this uh, power. 
um, the authority over all Judea. And remember last week we talked about Herod Agrippa I being a politician. He really is seemingly that way. Some believe that, I'm trying to be cynical when I say that, but it's, it's really the case. Uh, he was a half Jew. He, his goal was to really keep peace among the Jews. So he would do things like uh, go to the temple and read the law or sit for the hearing of the reading of the law. And that's what he tried to do. So now... With the Jews, there's this period of restlessness, right? Because there's this sect of Judaism that's starting to rebel. And they viewed Christianity as a sect of Judaism because these Christians were following this Jewish, what they thought, Jewish man, Jesus Christ. Uh, and so there was a division because of this sect. Uh, because now these Jews that call themselves Christians, they're not just having fellowship with one another now. Who are they reaching out to? The Gentiles, right? They're having fraternity with the Gentiles, which is bad news. So there's restlessness among uh, the Jews in Judea. So to keep the peace, Herod does what? What did we see that he did last week in chapter 12? The first thing he did, he grabbed one pillar of the head uh, of the church. And what did he do with him? Killed him. Who was that guy? James, the brother of John, the son of thunder. And so he kills James. Then what else does he do to the other pillar in the church? He arrests Peter, right? Puts Peter in prison. Now I want us to get to our account uh, itself, okay? Uh, we're going to start in verse 20. He's in Caesarea, which is kind of like the Tallahassee of this place, right? It's the, the capital city. And look at verse 20. Now he was very angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon. And, and, and with one accord they came to him, and having won over Blastus, the king's chamberlain, they were asking for peace because their country was fed by the king's country. So here's essentially what you have. You have Ju <laughs> I really had a map, okay? I just can't get it on the computer. Uh, you have Judea down here, okay? Caesarea is actually to the northeast, it would be. And way up north, you have these two cities named Tyre and Sidon that are on the coast. They're dependent upon Judea and Jerusalem for their grain. It's the only way they eat. They're a coastal city, so they get a lot of artifacts in from ships and wonderful things to sell, but there's not tons of, of grain there. There's not a lot of wheat fields in Fernandina, right? Uh, and so they are dependent upon these inland cities for their grain. Now, I don't know what exactly they did, how exactly they made Herod Agrippa mad, but somehow they made him mad. And so uh, in order to try and keep the peace and not have the king starve them by cutting off their grain, they had a tie. Maybe it was because of national lineage, but they sent a fellow named Blastus. Which, by the way, may be the coolest name in the Bible, right? Uh, it sounds like a wrestler. <laughs> uh, but Blastus, in this case, was the king's chamberlain. He was the closest confidant to the king. He was the aide to the king, and he had it in with the king. And apparently, because of whatever tie he had with Tyre and Sidon, he had persuaded the king to not ostracize the people over whatever the beef it was that they had. He said, calm down. These guys are loyal to you. They're your disciples. And even though they're not Jews, they want to follow you. Continue to be a benefactor to them. Everything's hunky-dory now, and, and they asked for peace through him because their country was supplied by food from the king's country. Um, and we don't know all the specifics of what happened there, 
But we know in verse 21, uh, many, many believe, I think probably this, this was the case, that it's August 1st, A.D. 44. That's the year in which he died. And so it makes most sense that in verse 21, what happens is it's the king's birthday. Uh, and, and so he's in Caesarea at this time. And there's a great celebration for the birthday of, of this king. Probably people from Tyre and Sidon come down. Uh, maybe they're going to have an audience with him. Who knows? But look what happens in verse 21. On an appointed day, Herod, having put on his royal apparel, took his seat on the rostrum and began delivering an address to them. So, at that time, in that arena, among these people, dressed in his royal garments, which is significant, by the way, because when a king in the Roman Empire was arrayed in royal garments, in a special sense... That is meant at least to refer that he has the favor of the gods upon him. That's why they wore those, those clothes, is to show the people in this elaborate view that they've got the favor of the gods. And here's this guy, he's set on the throne, just picture it, just like you've seen this in many movies, right? Where there's this, there's this central place, this guy goes out, he sits on the throne, and he's delivering this address. I mean, remember, what do we say about Herod Agrippa? He's, he's your token politician, which means as a, as a politician, he is likely a very skillful orator. The guy knows how to speak to people, and he's delivering an address to them. The powerful orator he was, you can imagine. This was a tremendous address, and apparently people from Tyre and Sidon are there. They're trying to curry favor, remember? So they, they shout, and they keep shouting, this may have gone on for a long time, but look at what they shout. Here's where it gets in interesting. The people kept crying out, the voice of a God and not of a man. The voice of a God and not of a man. The voice of a God and not of a man. The people are chanting this. They're continually saying this. They, they didn't stop saying this. And you can imagine this king probably standing, receiving this ovation, the accolades of the people, because we certainly don't see him doing anything to deflect it, which is going to be interesting, by the way, when we see the apostle Paul and the rest of this book go to places and they try and treat him like a god, and the apostle Paul says, you will not treat me like a god because I am not god. Agrippa I doesn't. Agrippa I seemingly doesn't do anything to deflect this. In fact, he's maybe even agreeing with him. They continue to chant it, the voice of a God and not of man. And then at that time, look what happens in verse 23. Just like you'd expect in the Bible, right? And immediately an angel of the Lord struck him because he did not give God the glory and he was eaten by worms and died. That's going to be your memory verse for next month, okay? I don't know if I'm um, He was struck by an angel. Why? Because he did not give God the glory. So he was eaten by worms and died. What a remarkable account this is to have in Scripture, right? I just love the Bible, don't you? Uh, what's very interesting, you've got this long quote in your notes by Josephus. Anybody know anything about Josephus? You ever heard about this guy before? Yeah, he's a historian. 
not, not known as a Christian historian, right? He was a Jew first, but he's also a contemporary that wrote about this time. In fact, uh, none of his words are, are canon or are divinely inspired by God in any means, but it's, it's almost as if he's writing one of the first commentaries because he's there and he gets to write about the sect of Christianity. And I, I think it's remarkable what he says about this account. In fact, he wrote more about Herod Agrippa I than anyone else. And he wrote about a lot of gods, which probably tends to mean that he spent more time under Agrippa I. And so listen to Josephus' account of what happened. Josephus would have written this, by the way, before he ever got a copy of the book of Acts in his hands. It's, it's likely he never even saw an account of the Gospels or Acts because they were still in the process of being written and hadn't gotten his hands on them. So this is really a secular account, of you will, but I think it's fascinating. Read this with me. I know it's a big one, but let's read it together. It says, Now when Agrippa had reigned three years over all Judea, Remember, because he came into power in A.D. 41, which lines up perfectly with history. He dies in A.D. 44. He came to the city of Caesarea, which was formerly called Strato's Tower. And there he exhibited shoes in honor of Caesar upon his being informed that there was a certain festival celebrated to make vows for his safety, which history thinks was likely on his birthday. At which festival a great multitude was gotten together of the principal persons and such as were of dignity through his province. On the second day of which shoes he put on a garment made wholly of silver and of a contexture truly wonderful and came into the theater early in the morning. Which time the silver of his garment being illuminated by the fresh reflection of the sun's rays upon it shone out after surprising manner and was so resplendent as to spread an horror over those that looked intently upon him. So you get what he's wearing here? He's wearing something that's really shiny. In fact, it's so shiny that when the sun shines on it, it terrifies the people that are there. Because they, once again, they remember they thought these were, these were divine robes. These were robes that showed the favor of God was upon him. Uh, and presently... His, uh, right. And presently his flatterers cried out, one from one place and another from another, though not for his good, that he was a god. And they added, be thou merciful to us. For although we have hitherto reverenced thee only as a man, yet shall we henceforth own thee as superior to mortal nature. The voice of a god, not of a man. Upon this, the king did neither rebuke them nor reject their impious flattery. Okay, that's Josephus being a good Jew right there. But as he presently afterward looked up, he saw an owl sitting on a certain rope over his head and immediately understood that this bird was the messenger of ill tidings, as it had once been the messenger of good tidings to him and fell into the deepest sorrow. A severe pain also arose in his belly and began in a most violent manner. And when he had been quite worn out by the pain in his belly for five days, he departed this life, being in the, the 54th year of his age and in the seventh year of his reign. I know it says he reigned only for four years uh, earlier, but he reigned a smaller part of another sect there, but only adding to the total part of, of the four years he actually reigned. Now, that's a crazy account, right? Uh, I love the part about the owl. That's weird. Uh, but it's wonderful to see this old early church historian really go hand in hand with what the gospel account says uh, because the Bible, as it always is, is true. Now, I know what you're thinking. Well, maybe you're not thinking this. <laughs> 
what is this he was eaten by worms and died, right? Did, did God send like a, a magical like Star Wars type worm that like just swallowed him up? No, there's actually a volume written in 1955 called The Bible and Modern Medicine, which you can tell by the date, it's no longer modern medicine. Uh, but a guy by uh, a doctor named Rendell Short, who had studied illnesses in the Bible, believed that this term, that is used not infrequently, by the way, to describe the death of, of kings, could be describing things like ringworms, tapeworms, or some kind of worms that came. What a night to eat spaghetti, by the way. I just wanted to, no, I'm kidding. Um, but, but let's think about this. Remember this. Uh, I love this. Miss Sheila just walked in and that, that happened. All right. Uh, remember this. These kings had pretty lavish diets, okay? They were really some of the only ones that did. They didn't have the sanitary procedures that we have today and certainly we take at First Baptist Church of Great Gables, right? They, they often had food brought from exotic areas and as gross as this is, you, you can get microbes and worms in them and unchecked, they can kill you. And, and that doctor assumed that this is what this was. But really, it doesn't matter. However it comes, it's an angel of the Lord that struck him. That's what the text says, because he did not give God glory. So why does it say it here? This man was regarded as king of the Jews. What's the problem with that? There's only one king of the Jews, and it's the king of kings, the king of all, the king of everything. It's the Lord Jesus Christ. And when this one, who in a little sense, a derivative sense, felt like he could safely be called king of the Jews in regards to human government, when it gets to that point where he begins to think that he is God-man, the God-man shows him that he's not. The voice of God, not of a man. The voice of God. Not of a man. God does not give glory to another. The king of the Jews was too close to Jesus the king. And whatever else we learn from this account, it's a good reminder, church family, you beware of taking glory for yourself that belongs to that God alone. Beware of taking glory for yourself. Because glory belongs only to God. What do you have that you have not received, as the scripture says? Now, that's the account itself and the contemporary confirmation of that. We looked at that. So, why is this here? That's a weird story to be placed specifically after we were kind of, we we're kind of all like cheering hooray last week after the story of, of Peter being broken out of prison, right? That was an amazing story. And now we got worms, right? This is weird. What, why is this story here? What's its point? I'm going to give you three reasons to why I think it's here. Number one, this is the first of what will become many lessons in the scripture against the cult of emperor worship that equal the worship of God. Now, you might think we don't really deal with that today, but I, I tend to disagree. From about 30 years before the birth of Christ, the Roman emperor, led by Augustus, the revered one, I guess he was the original reverend, uh, he was called, referred to several times by his people as Dominus Eduus, Lord and God. That's what they referred to him. That is the world into which the Lord God came. The emperor and his derivatives were regarded as soter. You guys know what soter is in the Greek? Savior, deliverer, even Messiah. 
And it is into that world that the Savior, the Messiah, comes and there will be a constant and inevitable clash between Christ the King and kings who take themselves what they think this is the place of Christ. One of the ancient writers, Virgil, described the ideal of the Roman Empire in this way. He said, But thou, O Roman, learns its sovereign sway to rule the nations. Thy great art shall be to keep the world in lasting peace, to spare the humbled foe, and to and crushed to earth the proud. It's nationalism, by the way. It's exactly what it is. And don't think that we can't tend in our culture and our society to put our nation as receiving all the glory. Christ will not give his glory to another. Even a nation he won't give it to. It belongs to him and him alone. Jesus is going to show that the state and the king are not divine and are not saviors. I will not give my glory to another. Whatever else the history of civilization is from the first century on, it's a history of the Lord Jesus showing that not even the greatest of kings are divine. No pope is divine. No president is divine. So number one, this is a lesson against the cult of the divine emperor. Number two, and just really quickly, I think the second reason this is here is because it's actually a fitting end to this chapter in the whole section of the book of Acts. If you think about it, how does this chapter begin? James is put to death. Peter's put in prison. Herod triumphs. So how should it end? Herod being put to death. Peter getting busted out of prison. And Jesus alone triumphing. That's why it's given at this point in the book to show that. I think it's a fitting end. That brings us to the third reason and the final reason. Because of verse 24. Look at what verse 24 says. But the word of the Lord continued to grow and to be multiplied. Luke uses this uh, several times. He uses it actually in, as interludes in the book of Acts. He used it in Acts chapter 6 verse 7. He's going to use it in at least two other cases in similar languages as well throughout other places in this book. Over against the words of men, the word of God is going to prevail. The word of God, the doctrines of the word of God, what you're hearing right now, continued and multiplied. People preach, the gospel goes forth, and there's a fertile field. But there's actually even more to that here, right? In Revelation 19, you have really this picture of the Lord Jesus, not, not just as coming on the last day, but it's a picture of what he does as he works throughout the earth. He has a name on him. His cloth, his robe is dipped in blood, but he has a name on him. You know what that name is? The word of God. Out of his mouth goes a sharp two-edged sword. That's what's in view here. Yes, it's the word of God that grew and multiplied, but it's the word of the Lord Jesus on a much bigger level who is God that triumphs over in the earth. The word of God is living. Jesus is alive and he takes his word and by his own power, he wakes people up, he convicts them, and he changes them. This is what happens. This is why you sit under the word of God because it is living, 
It's powerful. Jesus is all powerful. He uses his word as a soldier, uses his sword, and it works in you. It grows, it continues, and multiplies. He goes to the innermost being, piercing, to dividing asunder of soul and spirit, of joint and marrow. It discerns the thoughts and attentions of the heart, Hebrews 4.12, right? That's Jesus' sword, folks. So this shows, more importantly, in the third place, not that this is just a lesson against cultish emperor worship or that it's just a fitting into chapter 12 and now we're dealing with the Gentiles and you're going to see how much more powerful uh, he is than even the Gentiles. But it's also this lesson that Jesus always triumphs by his word, folks. He always does. Will there be opposition? Yes. Yes. Acts 12 teaches that. Will there be heavy opposition? Yes, prison and death are not uh, always not, uh, can sometimes be part of this. But Jesus always wins and he uses his word to bring about that victory. As I love what Spurgeon said, that quote you have in there, the scripture is the royal chariot in which Jesus rides. As we continue in Acts, you're going to see these victories as they come on the earth. But brothers and sisters, two final lessons here. For us to take in. This is why you ought not and I ought not to be put off by modern opposition to Christ in the Bible. You know why? Church, modern opposition to Christ in the Bible isn't modern. (laughs) It's not new. It's it's not something that just started. Don't say, ah, it's it's because of all this technology and social media. It's because we live in a secular society now, folks. It's because there is going to be a seed of the woman, which is Christ's church and his people, and, and the seed of the serpent. That's why. There's two groups, which means there's always going to be a battle. There's always going to be problems with unbelief. But be sure that you don't fall prey to the opponents of Jesus. These accounts are given to show you that the Bible is not some book of metaphysics. It's a Bible that intersects with real actual history, real reigning families, and real events, and real time, space, and history. Because you really have to deal with this real Jesus. See, if I'm I'm giving you my inflated, egotistical, religious opinions, I don't have any right to claim that you ought to listen to me. But I'm not giving my opinions. I'm telling you about the Jesus who came in history, and he is Lord. And if you're not for him, the Bible says, then you're against him. And if you aren't giving him glory, you are taking glory for yourself, and God will not give his glory to another. So friends, you have to be careful. Don't be put off by modern opposition to the Bible. There's nothing modern about it. It's always been. Since Genesis 3, it's been. Remember, secondly... Last lesson. Remember that Jesus always triumphs. He always triumphs in time. I love the story. Voltaire. Have you guys heard of Voltaire? He's a a French philosopher in the early 18th century. Uh, In a real sense, Voltaire was the father of of modern rationalism. You know what rationalism is? Um, If it doesn't fit reason, then it can't be true. Right? That's rationalism. And he was real sense one of the founding figures of modern disrespect of the religious establishment. For anything holy, his credo is this. Acrazes la infame. I don't know if that's right. Just try it. Erase the infamous, he said. Crush the infamous thing. And for him, the infamous thing was the Roman Catholic Church. 
But it was also anything having to do with Christianity and Christ. In fact, Voltaire said sometime in the 1700s, he said this quote. He said, within 50 years, people will forget about Jesus. 50 years later, I want you to hear this. 50 years later, Voltaire's home in France was used by the Geneva Bible Society. They bought it out and they used it, put printing presses into print Bibles that were used that could bring people the gospel. That's a wonderful story. It's a true story. And it's really an epitome of what this text is about, isn't it? That's why it's here, brothers and sisters. The state is not God, and it should never take to itself in a person or establishment the prerogatives that only belong to the true king. And Luke is writing to this church of all ages to say, you see how God sews things up when you're in the midst of persecution? And finally, it's to remind you again that Jesus always wins. And I ask as we close, are you for him or against him? Prayers that you be for him. Any questions for our text tonight? Wasn't that fun? Good stuff. All right. Any questions, comments, topics of discussion? Yeah, Frank? Yeah. Within five days, I, you know, that's, that's pretty intense. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's not a fun way to go either. It's likely very, very painful, I can imagine. Yeah, absolutely. Anything else? Yeah, and it really does bring back Miss Don Nebuchadnezzar, right? Does remind us that story in Nebuchadnezzar, this guy who had everything, all the power you could possibly want in the world, is a crazy person in a field acting like an animal, right? Uh, because once again, we have to remind ourselves that God will not give glory to another. And, and remember that, folks. Remember that as, as the election cycles start coming around again, remember that it's, it's nobody gets glory besides God. No one, absolutely no one. And we have a tendency in a culture to idolize men all the time. Idolize figures all the time. We ought to be careful. Not that we ought not to be involved. That's not what I'm saying. But be careful. Because all glory is due to God and God alone. Amen. Anything else? Y'all haven't changed. Absolutely. Yeah. Very true. And I think also on that sense of our idolatry, it's also the person's idolatry. Because I think the big sin here, even though these people were idolatrous, God doesn't give the worms to, the, to those people. It's the one who's trying to receive the glory who doesn't say, no, 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 I'm not God. The one who says, oh, this feels pretty good. Man, you're right. I, I should get this, right? This is what I deserve and earn. Yeah, that's the case. And you know, you're right. God hasn't changed, but neither has his enemy. So we ought not be surprised by any of these attacks that come along our way. Yeah, it's terrible to see. It's wicked. We hate wickedness. We should hate wickedness. But we not never be surprised by it. Absolutely. Anything else? Mm-hmm. 
We absolutely are. Yep. Absolutely. All right. Y'all have fun? We'll talk about joy on, on Sunday, so y'all better have, have some joy when we talk about the Word of God. Even when we talk about worms, there's, there's joy in it, right? Just think about the joy the worms had. No, I will not think about that. All right. Thank you, Frank. Let's pray together. Uh, Father, we thank you for your word. Lord, we thank you that you always win. <laughs> and we thank you that, Lord, not because of anything in us, anything that was lovely or attractive in us, but solely based on your goodness and character, that because you win, we being united to you by faith, by the work of Christ on the cross, we win. Lord, that's amazing to consider that we win. Lord, we, we feel uh, at, at times like, we don't ever win, that we, we don't ever get, Father, to see you work and to see you triumph, and yet remind us in the word that you always do, that we would trust that. Father, would you encourage us not, uh, Lord, to be surprised by opposition in our world, not to fear it, not to, Lord, to really chicken little it and say the world is, is falling, the sky is falling, and everything is going to doom. Lord, may we always be reminded that if we're wrapped up in Christ, it's the best, absolute, safest place we can be. Uh, because you will triumph and your word will triumph. Father, help us this week as we live out the truths we found in God's word tonight and continue to be with us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.